Bienvenidos. My name is Denise Cantor. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I am Dr. Leslie Stellis, licensed clinical psychologist. And we are your therapist friends. Leslie. <laughs> Hi. Buenas tardes. It's so nice to see and hear you again. I want to take us and reel us all the way back to the basics. What is mental health and how is that even talked about in our communities? I have a couple things, obviously, to share about that because I do think that mental health does get conflated with this idea that it equals mental illness. And so I'm curious, how is mental health talked about in your family? Denise, did you guys even talk about it? No. <laughs> and I think that's what was, as we were discussing what we wanted the conversation to look like, I was like, I... I don't know. Uh, I think it wasn't discussed. <laughs> I think that's the answer. It never, it wasn't a topic. It wasn't a thing. And definitely not treatment. That was, I don't think it was a part of our reality or an option until I was a grown up and, you know, started to look into careers and stuff like that. But it wasn't growing up. A conversation. Yeah, I agree with you. I I'm trying to like think back to even like some of the novelas that we used to watch. Mental health even discussed in those, and it there was, but it was sometimes, but it was always sort of to an extreme. So that's what I kind of mean by like mental health gets conflated with mental illness, and so we're talking about mental health that immediately means we're talking about someone who's quote unquote crazy <laughs> or needing to go get you know some psychotic medication, or that's why you go to a psychologist or a therapist. And I really do feel like that's what I was exposed to when I was younger. And and like you, I we didn't talk about mental health at all in our family. I mean, we talked about struggle. And there was, but there was never an underlying message of, wow, these things affected our mental health or they continue to affect our mental health, which is interesting. Yeah. Something that I hear a lot, even with my own patients, and I noticed that it's something that I hear within my family, pues ya pasó, right? Mm -hmm. Lo que pasó, pasó. And that's just life and you move on. So it happened. And you're right. It isn't a problem. You just kind of, it's a struggle. You La vida es así, and you just carry on until or unless it's extreme, until it's chronic mental illness, severe mental illness, where you're being hospitalized. And I'm thinking back in the novelas, all the crazy people that get carried away to mental institutions and the straitjackets, yeah. that's mental illness, right? That's it. There is nothing in between. Either así son las cosas or estás loco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, loco. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really do think that I'm not sure that there has been really that big of a shift in our communities from that place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, now we know more and we're in the field and mm -hmm. we have different thoughts about it. But I, I'm not sure that still there, there, it still seems like there is this collective sort of like silence around what mental health is. It's sort of like a dirty word. What perpetuates these messages and this stigma, when you mentioned one of them, which is this idea that lo que pasó, pasó. Our, our resiliency and our strength gets highlighted in that, right? Like that we can still keep moving forward despite, you know, struggling. And I feel like that is maybe a common experience amongst BIPOC communities across the board. Mm -hmm. But there is something that's lost there. And uh, um, there isn't this sort of like tending to 
we can take care of ourselves too. That's important too, to even be able to continue moving forward. Yeah. And the reason though, why we don't, right? This is a trauma response. Our parents and grandparents were very focused on making sure that there was food on the table and a roof over our heads. And that was it. It was about survival and just surviving. Um, we or parents or grandparents come from countries that are very poor and there's a lot of violence and there's lack of support for people and a lot of a lot of people feel like they're in survival mode that's all that matters so who cares that you're sad and you want to cry I said la vida what are you doing that's not going to help you right if your kids are hungry and you need to you know they need clothes I don't care about your depression I don't care about your anxiety I need to make sure that we're eating right and so that was a way that our family survived that our parents survived and it helped us get here but we are privileged enough to be in a place where now we can because our basic needs are being met we have jobs we have clothes we are not too worried about food or roof over our heads in general i know this pandemic has put a lot of pressure financial pressure on a lot of us but for the most part, we have this ability and this privilege to now look at our feelings. And like I said, that that res- trauma response was helpful in that it got us here and we survived, but we're not in survival mode anymore. Now it's about actually living our lives and enjoying it and thriving. Right. And I do think it probably, d- it depends on each individual's experience because we're we're the first generation after our parents have already come over here and you know I do think that there still is these messages of survival especially you know in undocumented families you know, some of those real systemic issues and oppressions right that maintain this survival mode some of these same messages, some of these same narratives can still show up several generations after and probably still do, right? And so, yeah, I think it does t- it does take some thinking about the, the, this balance of, of like really tending to our needs and being able to function, right, without thinking that this is the only way mm-hmm. to push everything down mm-hmm. so that we can keep going forward. Yeah, but even in the middle of trauma, you can still take care of yourself and it won't make it go away, but it will make it lighter. Yeah. So that's even before people even consider reaching out to someone for support, if at all. Mm-hmm. And then we also have things like institutionalized racism and how there's historically in BIPOC communities, the way individuals have been treated have been very unfair and very there's lack of resources. There's been this this buildup of lack of trust to to even consider getting support from someone else outside of our small nuclear families or yeah. yeah so there's there's things that we're pushing up against and i think it's connected to that trauma right that our mm-hmm. our parents grandparents come from countries where there is a mistrust with government and coming here that's still passed down 
right? That's mm-hmm. still a lesson that is taught. And like you said, even after generations, it's still a lesson that's passed down, even if it's whether or not it's applicable, because I think it's also important to note that the institutions in this country weren't necessarily built for us. And I know we talked about this in the previous episode, so they're not really built to to serve us or to help us. So even some of these systems have blind spots, right? Even therapy mm-hmm. itself. I mean, this is part of the conversation that you and I are, are having as an umbrella conversation in this podcast. And it's what are the blind spots in therapy and in mental health, right? Where are we not addressing how culture affects your mental health and how you perceive it, receive it, or are resistant to it. Mm-hmm. And you, so even the system itself sometimes plays a role in that mistrust. It's both mm-hmm. it's both a trauma response that's been passed down to us, but also the institutions that are not adjusting or being intentional and active in adjusting to the different communities that they claim or aim to serve. Right, right. And for our listeners, for the ones that are have made sort of an effort in trying to figure out or get more education around mental health, it does put a little bit more pressure on you to break that cycle. You know, if this is the way we've been living for a while, and you know, these narratives have perpetuated over the course of time, it does put a little bit more pressure on you to make that change and to say, wait, this is important. (laughs) And I think particularly for us who are in this field, I'm curious to just kind of hear what your family's response was hearing from you that mental health was not talked about when you said that you wanted to be a mental health clinician, what was their response? I, they were mostly supportive. I think my parents are not a hundred percent on what it is exactly that I do. Now that I've started to post stuff and be more active and present in social media, my parents, along with my partner, are like my number one fans. Like they're all my little fan club. So my parents will follow and read and watch everything that I put out. And I think that's been helping them understand what I do. And it gives me a little bit more credibility when I'm talking to them. But my parents have always been very supportive, even if they don't 100% understand what I'm doing. They're like, okay, I believe in you. You know, but I'm not sure that they understood like mental health is important. And even within my family, there is some stigma because even this idea of, hey, if you're struggling with this, I wonder if it would be helpful for you to talk to someone. And it's like, pero yo no estoy loco, pero yo no estoy loca, right? It's like, well, yeah, you don't have to be, you know, I- I'm a therapist. I promise you that you don't have to be crazy to go to therapy. It just, Sometimes it does help to have someone who is unbiased and can give you feedback along with psychoeducation about what's happening to your brain and to your body mm-hmm. in response. But even then there is still a little bit of disconnect perhaps or not a full understanding of what I do and what mental health is, but they were always supportive. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I can relate to that too. I'm the first one to pursue higher education. So even just picking <laughs> a, a specific career path, I think they were just, it was new to them, even just that mm. in and of itself. Um, yeah. But I would agree that they also didn't really know 
I think my dad still doesn't know. He's he's an older he's an older man who's born in the forties. So he definitely doesn't I think, I was doing the math in my head. Oh yeah, he's he's old. <laughs> so he I remember one time actually we were at the doctor's office and we were in the waiting room. I think I was still in undergrad and we were in this waiting room and there was a poster about depression and he was like, What is that? <laughs> And I tried to explain it to him and he just, he couldn't, he didn't understand still, even when I was trying to explain it to him. But yeah. there are times where he'll be like, what do you do again? <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm a psychologist, you know, I work with bull and I do this and that. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he'll ask me again later, but it doesn't actually sink in. My mom has, has definitely been a little bit more progressive in the beginning. I mean, she has her biases. I think, again, some of those narratives and, and, you know, some internalized shame about seeking out support was very loud, I think, in the beginning when I would talk with her about stuff. And over time, she's been a lot more open, I think, to even just education around specific things. So she'll come to me for just anything, which is great. I'm not an expert in everything, though, but it's great that she is interested even in learning, right? So she'll sometimes be like, Leslie, why why do kids have autism? Or Leslie, why, you know, or if someone experiences, you know, sexual trauma, what, what can happen? You know, like stuff like that, where it's yeah. just really big questions and it helps us have conversations. And I think if I wasn't a ment- mental health clinician, I'm not exactly sure if that would be present, yeah. at, you know, in in how things are now and how open we are about talking about it. Yeah, I agree. I wonder how many households it would be like that where you just, you just don't talk about it. It's true. So if we know this, right, we know that this is an issue. <laughs> I wonder what do we do about it as a community to help bridge those gaps in understanding and education around the fact that mental health is such a large part of our overall health. It determines how we function in our world, determines how we manage our emotional states. It also determines the relationships we have with others. You know, there's such a large genetic component to how our mental health is expressed. So it's so big and so important. And so how do we make it more important in our communities? I wonder how would we fix that? I love the example of you talking to your mom about this stuff there's something very powerful in becoming curious i'm going to use this example because i fell in love with a scientist and (laughs) i think i i love curious people and it's helpful to be curious about life because it gives you a different perspective in approaching things you know your mom is approaching things with curiosity. Sexual trauma is big and scary and difficult to talk about for victims and sometimes even for therapists when stuff comes up. It's it's tense. You can feel it in your body when this stuff comes up. I wonder if anyone who's listening to this, when you hear that term, perhaps you feel your body tighten. Perhaps you're feeling uncomfortable. So it is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And we tend to avoid things that are uncomfortable. 
but when we approach things with curiosity, they're not as scary anymore. And we can learn from them and use information to better address and manage whatever's coming up for us. And I mean that for everything, even for our strong emotions. I always say, like, just be curious about it. If it's sadness, if it's anger, if it's fear, be curious about it. What's it telling you? What's happening for you? Why do you think that's coming up for you? And that will be helpful for us to to just be curious. I think that's what we do as therapists. And the reason why I was talking about it, connecting to science, because I just realized I never connected back to that, <laughs> is because I noticed that my partner is very inquisitive, always curious, and always wants to know. We're having a conversation and something comes up and he says, I wonder what that's about. And then he'll go to his phone and research <laughs> what that's about. <laughs> and I love that. I think that's such a wonderful way to approach approach the world. It opens you up for conversations that you wouldn't have had otherwise with yourself or with other people. I love that. I definitely do think this larger concept about remaining open and curious allows us to facilitate those conversations with one another. If you lean into that discomfort, it makes it easier over time to have the conversations. And this actually reminds me of the whole point of me making those videos about suicide prevention is because, again, I mean, nobody goes to therapy to talk about butterflies and rainbows, right? We're going to talk about stuff that can be heavy. I do think that there is a way that we kind of keep things hush-hush because it's either too scary, we're feeling ashamed by it, or someone's going to judge us for it. And so I do think that when I made those videos, what I was trying to say is that, yes, this is a difficult thing to talk about, and it's okay to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So if my mom is coming to me and asking me questions and I'm like, don't talk to me about that or I don't know, then of course that's going to give the message like, don't talk to me. But mm -hmm. the, every time she would talk to me, I would lean into that and be like, yeah, let's talk about it. Like, this is what happens or this is a possibility. And then guess what? She got more comfortable doing it more. If we remain open to one another without coming from a space of judgment, then it helps us facilitate those conversations more easily. Yeah, I think the unknown is dark. And curiosity kind of starts to shine a light in things when you're curious and you lean into it. Mm -hmm. It's not as scary anymore. And we do, I mean, this is one of the interventions that we do a lot with anxiety. You know, it's this idea of follow the thought. Sometimes we stop at the scary thought. If I ask it, will people think I'm crazy, weird, strange, stupid? And then you stop at that thought. <laughs> but number one, we don't know that's a fact. And number two, so what? What happens to you if somebody thinks poorly of you? Nothing. You're going to be okay. Your physical body will be fine. And the opinion of one person does not make you that thing that they think you are. So I think curiosity is the start. Conversations. This is, again, another thing that we hope to be able to add. And it's talking about it. Yes. Your therapist friends are going to talk to you about the things that are uncomfortable or scary. And we're going to be in this together. 
and process that that comes up for us. Conversation is also healing. I think sometimes what can perpetuate the idea that it's not okay for us to talk about things is how we say it. I do think that if someone is struggling in your family and you say like, oh, you should go to therapy or like Mm. you need to go talk to somebody, saying it in almost, again, in a shaming way or in almost it's a bad thing kind of way, we need to normalize that it's not a bad thing if you need to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. It's not weak. There's a lot of strength, actually, in seeking out support that gets wrapped up in in the shame. I think that some sometimes comes up in our families about something being wrong, even just identifying that something's wrong and that we're not okay. I think that's different in BIPOC communities because how we present ourselves to the world is different from white folks. When we mess up, when we do a wrong thing, it's a reflection of all of us. It's not the same for the majority. And I think those things also contribute to this issue because it's very strong, I think, in families as well. If something happens to one person, then it's a reflection of the entire family and all of us are fucked up. And I don't think that that's very healthy and that's not okay. And so I actually think there's a way we can turn that into something so positive because if we know that in our communities we rally, what better way to really be there for one another than to uh, uh, to support, right? Yeah, absolutely. And even a good way to lead or to be an example, right? This idea of you are, you're representing your family or your people, right? Then you can also be representing growth, openness, change. You can be that person that is brave enough to say, I don't know everything and I don't have everything figured out and handled. I struggle sometimes and I don't know what I'm doing and I mess up, but I'm growing and learning every day from everything that I do. Mm -hmm. I'm human. I'm imperfect. But I think it's also connected to the trauma response. Mm-hmm. This idea of being in survival mode because you're a warrior, right? If you can just muddle through, get through it, just keep fighting. And so you must fail then if in the middle of this war, you're going to sit and talk about your feelings, right? This is a, a war we're fighting. This is You're trying to survive in the middle of a jungle and you want to sit here and talk about your feelings that would be weak except that we're not in a war and we're not in the middle of the jungle we're not just surviving so you can just sit and talk about your feelings Mm -hmm. process things yeah really digest and heal from things not just have them because i mean the other thing with trauma that we say over and over again it it gets it's held in our bodies Mm -hmm. That stuff gets that stuff does get passed down through generations, even without saying anything. It's in our DNA too, and so yes, there's there's this way that we can reverse that somehow. We can atone to that, but it takes that courage to stand up and say, you know what? How we have been trying to you know survive, maybe we don't have to do that anymore, and it's not the most healthy for us anymore. 
yeah, maybe if you stop and think and really listen to your body, you might realize that you've been uncomfortable this whole time. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when you, that princess and the pea story comes to mind. A true princess can sleep on a bed with a pea or something and would, <laughs> would feel it, right? Would feel the discomfort because she's, I guess, so refined. Uh, that's our brain, right? If you can train your brain to start to learn things that are uncomfortable, you can start to get rid of things that are affecting you in other ways, right? Because the more in tune we are with our bodies, we start to recognize how it's coming out when we don't deal with things. That maybe I didn't get enough sleep and then I got in a fight with my partner and I went to work and my coworker made a mistake and I was so upset from the morning and not getting enough sleep and getting into a fight with my partner in the morning that now I'm letting it out on my coworker or on my boss, right? Or on my student or whatever other person outside of what initially triggered me, right? And I'm just cranky the whole day. And maybe that messes with my appetite and I don't eat, which gives me a headache, which means I can't concentrate and I have difficulty making, you know, processing memories and remembering things. So it affects you in so many ways when there's this little pee on your mattress, right? And if you can go back and heal that and process that, the rest of your world, the rest of your interactions can also begin to heal and level out because you're addressing directly what is bothering you. Mm-hmm. And in the future, you will know how to deal with it better as well. So it won't affect you as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually something that I mention in therapy a lot. I always start off by saying, you know what, I can't promise you that you're never going to feel depressed or anxious ever again. This is not, I'm not here to cure you or anything like that. Whole point is for us to work on things, be able to manage things a little better, discover things about ourselves so that the next time something, a struggle comes up or we get faced with a challenge, doesn't throw us off as much, right? Or it doesn't completely take over our lives and that we have a little bit more control. Because you're still a human being. Right. Right. Yeah, you're supposed to experience the full spectrum of emotions. If I have a patient that tells me I'm happy every day, all the time, then I'm concerned. <laughs> in the same way that I would be concerned with the patient who says I'm depressed all the time. Right. You shouldn't be in one emotion all the time. If you're generally happy, like 99% of the time, and you feel pretty content, that's good. But if you're telling me I'm great and happy and energized 24-7, then I'd want to look into that but you're supposed to feel sad and you're supposed to feel angry and you're gonna feel the anxiety and uncertainty. And that's not you being broken. It's you being human, Mm -hmm. but it's about how can we help you manage these things as they happen for you so that you don't feel as overwhelmed Mm -hmm. And, and the emotions can be what they're supposed to be, which is temporary. Right. But everything affects your mental health, all of who you are, whatever different parts of your identity are. Mm -hmm. They all affect your mental health because that's how you are experiencing the world and how others are experiencing you, especially the parts of you that are phenotypically red, right? So our brownness, our womanness, 
right? If you're female presenting, right? What is, what is, how are people, pe people are going to interact with you based on what they see initially. And so that is going to affect your mental health because of the society that we live in. And as therapists, we look at that part too. We will ask you these things in intake. <laughs> what was it like? What do you identify as? Right? That's important. Absolutely. I think this is one of those other pieces that I know we talked about in a previous episode about like what makes for a more well-rounded therapist or what makes therapists different. It's This is another thing. Consideration of, of cultural identity and how they intersect and what your experience is like because they do shape our mental health, whether we're conscious about it or not. I think that's part of things to explore in therapy, but they do, especially if you're not in the majority. I wanted to piggyback for a second about how the words that we use are important because I wanted to point out that perhaps our listeners have noticed our long pauses in between words. And that's because even we try to be mindful with the words that we're using because we're aware of how powerful they are. I think we had made this intention of not qualifying therapists as good and bad, which we had, I think, started at some point and then recognized that they didn't really feel good to use those words. And we want to be more intentional and mindful of the words that we're using because they are important. So if you're listening to this, you might even notice that we pause and think. There, I remember in grad school, I had one professor who would have the longest pauses. He'd be like, and then my classmates and I would just kind of look at each other like, what word do you think he's going to say? <laughs> they would, some of my colleagues would be frustrated, but I loved that. I was like, it's so important for him that what he's feeling and what he's trying to tell us, right, is translated the best way possible, right, expressed the best way possible, that he will take perhaps a good five to seven seconds thinking about the right word. So maybe that was a bit of overkill, but even we try to be mindful of our words. There should be a, an approach of care and consideration and so I'm glad that we're, we're creating that sort of environment here where we're being thoughtful about what we're saying. And we're taking into account how our Latinx identities and culture play a role in our mental health and how hard it is to start working on it when it's still scary and difficult to even have conversations about it, to even admit it. Yeah, that's part of the work is to normalize that for each other, that we're going to talk about this stuff and it's OK. And feeling stressed is enough for you to go to therapy. It's fine. And going to therapy doesn't mean that you have failed or that you're broken or that you're weak. Therapists are, are trained and educated. They have information about how trauma works, how your brain works, how it connects to your body. And that is the kind of information that you're going to be receiving and working with if you're trying to manage stress, anxiety, relationships, work, 
whatever is happening for your family dynamics. And yes, also trauma if you've lived it. Yes, also any sort of chronic severe mental illness. Yes. But it's not just that. You can, if you would like to get extra support, have that accountability, have that space for processing with someone who is unbiased and has information specifically for this that can tailor your treatment, that's also okay. You can do that. Yes. I think that is so, so important for us to highlight the fact that you don't need to have a psychotic break or be super low functioning and not being able to do anything to go speak with someone that really you can be on the spectrum of any sort of functioning, right? Maybe it is hard. Maybe it is hard for you on a different level than it might be like your next door neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. And that that's okay. You don't need to be going when when you hit a wall, right? Like a, a metaphorical wall. You can go when you're feeling maybe a little bit overwhelmed or you're finding maybe you're learning something about yourself and you want to have some space and a sounding board to, to explore that a little bit deeper because it's affecting something in your life. I hope and I wonder if even in our lifetimes will be come to a place where it will be normal to just schedule a counseling session or a therapy session. That it'll be routine care, like going to the doctor, going to the dentist. And that would be so wonderful, you know, where it's okay. It's like, oh, yeah, I have a therapy, you know, I have a therapy appointment today. And I've actually seen memes about like millennials and Gen Z's and how they talk about uh, their therapist, even in their conversations with their friends. Oh, yeah, my therapist said this and that it is normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got to bring that into older generations and Latinx communities too, you know, to just be able to say that. But hopefully with what we've started, you all can say my therapist friends said that. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> therapist friends are talking about this yesterday and hopefully that will also be the a little jumping off point for you for therapy yes my therapist friends said that it's okay not to be okay it's okay to talk with someone about it it's okay to talk in your family about it i again want to say that i feel hopeful and that looking forward to the day where it will be extra extra normalized (laughs) for us to talk about mental health in every our everyday life and that it will not just be in our communities but it'll be systemically as well that this will also be valued from a top-down perspective and insurance companies and everyone else also will view therapy as being important (laughs) yeah but this is part of the start yeah gotta start somewhere we're like we're just adding our little penny to this bucket of this is another space where you can come to to talk about stuff to learn about stuff to process stuff to complain about stuff (laughs) together and if you're listening to this this is already this is already a very good step that you're open to having these conversations and listening and with that yes conversations we want to talk to you we want to know your perspective and what it was like for you growing up and how did you find us how did you find this podcast and think yes i want to spend this amount of time listening to two therapists talk about what it's like 
to be Latinx, how to manage my mental health, what that whole experience is. How do those two big themes of Latinx and mental health interact? Yes, I, I would love to hear more. And you can find us on my therapist friends on Instagram. And yeah, we want to continue this conversation and hold space for it because it's very important. So thank you, Denise, for holding this space with me. Of course. Thank you for this conversation. It was good. It felt good. And thanks to everybody else who joined us for this conversation. Ay los vidrios. Ay los vidrios.